Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. So we are super excited for this episode of Girl on the Gov, the podcast, and this time around, we have a really super amazing guest, uh, Ms. Michelle Hinchy, uh, who is a candidate for New York State Senate, um, and we are super, super amped to get to know her, of course, ask tons of questions about state government and running for office. So without further ado, uh, Michelle, what are you running for and why? Give us the scoop. Hi, yeah, thanks so much for having uh, having me on. Uh, we are running for uh, state Senate uh, in the Senate District 46. And so that encompasses five counties. You know, as you get into more rural communities, the districts get a lot bigger uh, because they all have to have roughly the same number of people. Uh, and so our counties include part of Ulster County, all of all, uh, Greene County, part of Albany County, part of Schenectady County, and all of Montgomery County. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> serious territory. <laughs> yeah, up that's there. some turf. It, it is. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think all of the uh, Senate seats are supposed to have roughly about 300,000 people in them. But you can imagine once you get into like kind of more rural communities and especially more upstate communities uh, to yeah. get those numbers, uh, you have to go kind of much farther out and so less geographically dense exactly uh and so you know those are the the time it takes also to kind of reach all of those people and the cost of mail and doing all the things you kind of need to do you know kind of directly correlate with how large Mm -hmm. your district is yeah what kind of what is the base of your campaign and what you're running on i mean i know state government we kind of want to get into that later of what that all encompasses but i think um it's interesting to see like a state Senate perspective of during this election and how people kind of forget too. There's like, you got state senators to vote for. Um, And so, you know, when you're going out and talking to voters, like what, what are you asking them? What are you promising? How does that work? Yeah. You know, uh, for me, it's so interesting because I think, you know, all of us get so wrapped up in the national conversation, you know, if you're paying attention to the news and even if you're trying not to pay attention to the news, it's really hard to avoid it right and most of that conversation is all at the federal level especially in a a race or a year like ours in a presidential election everybody's talking about the presidency they're talking about u.s senate and even the house of representatives right because that's kind of what we think about when we think about um politics but we forget how important state government is right and uh you know we think that we're just so impacted really by the national but quite frankly We are way more impacted day to day by our state and local governments. So they're actually arguably more important uh, for kind of people to to know about and to think about and to vote for, because it's really what's impacting your day to day life. Uh, For me, you know, I'm from uh, this area. I'm from uh, one of the communities that's encompassed in our district from Saugerties in Ulster County. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important. We need more upstate voices in the conference. One thing that's really exciting is that, 
in 2018, uh, Democrats flipped a lot of seats in the Senate. It had been kind of historically controlled by Republicans. Um, and then they flipped a bunch of seats in 2018. Uh, but you can imagine a lot of those seats, I mean, they were from all over the state, but a lot of them were really in more urban areas and uh, places like uh, Manhattan, outside the city, um, other Long Island, places like that. Uh, but when you don't have other voices from other communities and other parts of the state, some of those things are the issues that those people are facing, you know, kind of just aren't on the table because they're they're not the issues that the current electeds uh, were put in position to fight and advocate for. Uh, you know, growing up for me, you know, I have an interesting story uh, kind of getting into politics. You know, I grew up in it in a way. Uh, my father was in elected office for a long time and he was in the state assembly. Uh, but much of my life, he was in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I was able to really see firsthand the kinds of positive impacts you can make on people's lives up front, right? With hard work and dedication and compassion. And, you know, the way he and I would kind of bond and spend time together on a Saturday would be we'd get in the car and then we'd drive, you know, from some of these names might not mean anything to, to some of you, but, you know, <laughs> we'd drive from Saugerties to Poughkeepsie and Newburgh, which are about an hour away south. And then we drive over to Binghamton and Ithaca, which is like a couple of hours west. And then we'd come back, you know, to Woodstock and have dinner and then go home. And, you know, I really saw one, the amount of work it, it takes to do it right. But meeting with all of those people and being in the community and hearing uh, what people were facing and, you know, what was going well and what wasn't going so well and what they needed help with and the conversations they would have with my dad starting at a really young age uh, really shaped for me what's important in the world, right? And, and I think seeing all of that up front uh, really early made a really big impact in kind of how I started to develop my own sense of priorities. And, uh, you know, I started looking around, we can go a little bit into bio if you care to later. But, you know, for me, I started looking around a few years ago on kind of how I would give back and be involved. Uh, and then my dad got sick. And it was also, you know, a crash course uh, for me and how broken our healthcare system is, too. And, you know, as a congressman, you could think that he could have some of the best health insurance. Uh, and we actually had to sell land to pay for his home care. And if that's what we were going through, uh, you know, yeah. what is everybody else facing? Uh, you know, yeah. these are the things that we need to we need to talk about. And I think it's so important too. we've seen that we need new voices, you know, and fresh perspectives and a diversity of uh, people and ideas at the table to address a lot of these things that have been issues for decades, uh, but we just haven't really paid enough attention to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so crucial. And it's funny, sometimes you don't um, know almost what you're missing um, until you go through things yourself. So from even the healthcare perspective, I, I can definitely, I was actually talking to a friend about this the other day. It's like, it's like I've got, I've gone on every health insurance I think humanly possible at this point and every single one of them has been awful. And like the amount of like dollars I've spent out of pocket for things and I, it's not like pretty healthy I like to say, but like, it's like not like anything crazy and it's the amount of thousands of dollars that I'm spending. So like if there's someone that has a larger health issue, I can't even imagine, right? Like what they might have to do to be able to afford things. So I think it's like, okay, well, if that's my experience and my perspective, then obviously I want to then put my, you know, hat in the ring or be able to contribute to some type of conversation. So it's really nice to hear too, that in a sense, you're doing the same thing. You have this concept and this experience that you are also pulling into, you know, your campaign. Yeah, I think, you know, you you have to or you should, you know, if you're if you're running for office, you're running because either you have ideas to make a difference or you've seen that things are broken and know that it needs to change. Right. And yeah. uh, for us, like I learned through that experience, you know, a lot of long term care isn't even covered by insurance. Right. And like for me, it was like, how does this make any sense? Because this is the moment in your life that you really need it. Right. If you have an incurable right. disease that requires extensive long term care, like that's what insurance to me is for. Uh, but it's actually right. not covered. That's what you've been paying so much for right? like every month. <laughs> so like, just inherently that feels uh, like a problem. So, you know, when you identify yeah. problems, uh, even in any level of government, you know, if you see it, you know, you should kind of try to figure out how to solve it. Absolutely. And I think too, it, from your, your whole story, I mean, obviously 
influence from a young age with politics? Would you say that was like the biggest catalyst for running for office? Or was it more, you know, a mixture of that with some of the things you're seeing? I guess what was the general inspiration point for how you got here? Yeah, I think it's a mix. You know, I mean, one I've been asked when I was going to run since I was like seven. Right. So it's kind of always <laughs> I bet. been in the back of my mind. Casual. Yeah. Well, and I also recognize, you know, that I come from a place of privilege in that. Right. Like I think getting into running for office is such a daunting thing, even doing it myself, kind of understanding what it takes, having a little bit, you know, I'm, I've never run for office myself before, but being around it, being around campaigns, you know, knowing people in that world. Uh, and it's still so crazy hard that like, God bless everyone who, you know, doesn't have any sense of, of what it takes because that those are the people that we need, right? Like we need people who have not been in this forever if we're going to change things. Um, but it's really, really hard. And, you know, so it's always been in the back of my mind. And I recognize that that already gives me a little bit of a leg into even recognizing that it was something that I could do. Um, and, but it was also, you know, when you, grow up in it you also see all the negative sides too uh as i'm sure you can imagine you know the time it yeah. takes uh you know that's how my dad and i spent our saturdays you know we didn't spend our saturdays going to a baseball field or something you know it was yeah. very different um you kind of realize what those priorities become and obviously we were like as his child a, a high priority but really almost second to the people that he was elected to represent, right? And all of their needs. And it was really important for me. I knew that I cared about these issues and I knew that I was passionate about it, but it was really important because if you're gonna do it, you better do it right. And if you're gonna do it right, it require, it really does require sacrifice. And uh, it was important for me if I was gonna do that, that I knew that there wasn't something else out in the world that I felt as strongly about. And so for the last 10 years, so I graduated from, the Industrial and Labor Relations School at Cornell in 2009, uh, which was the last recession uh, we were all in, and you know, really challenging to find a job in upstate New York, let alone anywhere uh, at that time, but was really fortunate to get a job from an internship that I had had that kind of set me off on a 10-year career path in communications, working for technology companies and media companies, but it became pretty apparent uh, you know, a few years in that uh, I always felt like there was a lot more to do uh, and to give back and to be involved. And that's about the time I started looking around and then my dad got sick and it was just another example. You know, I stayed on with the company that I was with because it provided me a paycheck, uh, but it also provided me the flexibility to be home with him and to help my mom who became his primary caregiver. Um, but it, you know, it just really reaffirmed that there's so much work to do. And yeah. if, you know, we're not going to get in, if people like me, people like us aren't going to get in to try to throw their hat in the ring and switch it up a little bit, you know, and actually talk about these issues and nothing's going to change. And yeah. uh, I realized that, you know, if it was ever something that I even considered, a lot of people don't, and that's fine. But if you are considering it, do it because many people aren't. And uh, mm -hmm. if I didn't do it now, you know, I didn't know when I would. Um, I'm glad you made that point because I think we do need to like acknowledge the job itself and how important it is and how actually really honorable it is. I think, you know, once you're in office, we've seen like, you know, these elected officials sometimes become corrupted and we get frustrated at that. But I think it's important to remember there really are a lot of people doing it for the right reasons and out of their heart and like they're sacrificing their family and like it's time with them. And um, it's a really honorable job. And I feel like we forget that just in the midst of all of the kind of nastiness that we've especially seen these days with politics, but. Yeah, well, and you see, you know, there are a lot of people who are become or are already inherently corrupt in it, right? I mean, we're seeing that, we see it a lot at the national level, you know, but it happens everywhere, um, but it's not everyone, uh, you know, and, and it's important to, to know that and to not be, you know, so, uh, like disenchanted with it because you just think everybody, you know, there's no way you can change it yeah. because it's just a mess. There's a lot of really good people who are in it for the right reasons. Every time I say that, I feel like I'm from The Bachelor, but <laughs> who really are in it for the right reasons and yeah. wanting to make a difference. And if you see people in your community who are elected who you feel aren't, you know, get them out. 
you know, elect someone yeah, else yeah. who who will actually fight for you because that's, you know, it's be, it's beholden on us to make sure that our elected officials are working for us. You know, I think about voting, you know, it, it does make such a difference and especially at the local level, you know, yeah. it's, those are the things that fewer people are voting for. We see so often down ballot drop off, right? And, you know, we've learned that trickle down economics don't work. Um, and so like trickle down ballot voting also doesn't work. And so I think it's really important for people in the community um, and any of the activists and organizers and people who are running to really educate people on kind of the lower ballot people and like the lower ballot races, because, you know, it's so hard to break through. It's hard to get press. People aren't paying that much attention to it. They are smaller regions and smaller areas. Um, but the drop off between like, federal office and even to state is huge. I mean, in 2018, if everyone who voted for um, our congressional representative voted for the person running for state Senate, she would have won. But she lost wow. by a decent margin because people just stopped voting because yeah, they didn't know. Wow. Yeah. So votes really matter, especially the, the more local you get because fewer people vote yeah. uh, at that moment. And so if you want to have a say in it, it really matters. That's also really just good to think about in terms of the down ballot drop off, because I think there is definitely a misconception that people just they're Democrats or Republicans and they just checkmark everything down that list. But in reality, a lot of it is this idea like, OK, well, I don't know what I'm voting for, or who I'm voting for, so I'm just not even going to touch it. And that lack of education on the people running, which sometimes has to do with not enough press and not enough communication about it and obviously budgetary issues that also fall into that whole bucket of worms, but that lack of understanding of just generally the landscape, I mean, makes people really, you know, scared to put an opinion out there, which I understand. I really get where they're coming from, but I think that needs to change and kind of be recalibrated um, to make sure that that's not an issue. And that instead of it being a situation where people only put two votes at the top for, oh, you know, I know, you know, the president and I don't know, this person running for, you know, Senate whatever, and then leave it at that. I mean, that needs to change. So I think that actually kind of in a twisted way leads me to my next question. So it's obviously you picked a particular office to run for. Why New York State Senate? Was that like sort of what you had your eye on from age seven when you were first asked, obviously? Or was it one of those things where it just felt like a good fit um, in terms of the issues you wanted to represent? It, you know, the latter. I mean, I also fall into the bucket of people who weren't paying that much attention to more of our state and local government growing up because I wasn't in it. You know, I was more even when I was in it with my dad, it was all about the federal stuff. And, uh, you know, it's really easy to just kind of stay there. And so it was never something that I really thought I would do. Um, but, you know, when my dad was sick and I chose not to get involved at that point, I got really involved with the Antonio Delgado campaign for Congress um, and became a surrogate for him, sat on his first environmental roundtable, did kind of a host of other things. And fundamentally, it just reaffirmed for me that this is the work that I want to be doing and need to be doing and should be doing. And wonderfully, he won and we flipped that congressional seat. Uh, which was really exciting and great. And then so when I kind of had this moment where I was like, you know what, this it's kind of now or never. And this are, you know, where I live, this Senate seat uh, was still, I'm a Democrat and was still controlled by a Republican who quite frankly hasn't been doing much uh, for our district. You know, the district was actually drawn for him. Uh, he was an assemblyman and that the census cycle 10 years ago, so district, all the district lines are drawn every 10 years with the census and based on population. And uh, part of the deal in the last census cycle when they were redistricting was that the Republicans can draw an extra seat. And so while we're the 46th district, we're actually the 63rd ever created and there are only 63 Senate seats in New York. Uh, so we're the newest one for George Amador. And, uh, you know, there are still so many, and then to answer, I think one of your, you know, your earlier questions, what are some of the issues that we're running on? You know, so many of these things haven't been addressed in the last six years um, that he's been in office, that he's held this seat, things like access to broadband and internet services, you know, I mean, that's crazy that in 2020, many people and many families still don't have access to reliable internet. And we knew that that was awful 
pre-COVID, but has now clearly been elevated and exacerbated because of COVID. You know, we look at it with healthcare, we in telemedicine, we look at it for education, um, from jobs and economic development perspective. Uh, you know, it's something that we desperately need, and he wasn't doing anything to address it. You know, we look at climate change and our environmental resources. Uh, it's so profoundly important, especially in upstate, that we're protecting our open fields and we're working with our farmers to protect our farmland and that we have clean water. Uh, you know, there's many communities in upstate New York that don't even have access to clean water. And like, when you think about that, you think more about like Flint, Michigan, right? You think about what we're reading in the news. And yet I can name three towns off the top of my head quickly that don't have access to clean water here in New York, uh, in our district. And the opponent, you know, Rich Amador, or George Amador, who was in uh, office, actually won the Oil Slick Award by the Environmental Advocates Group, right? And so it's clear that the representation we had wasn't reflecting the needs that we have. Uh, and it was, I thought, you know, if I could kind of throw my hat in the ring here and actually, you know, fight a little fire with fire with our last names too and actually talk about the issues people would see and really understand that we've got to go in a different direction yeah well i'm glad you kind of got into that because we did want to ask like in terms of specifics um of your campaign like can you tell us more about your platform and for your district what are you what are you fighting for yeah you know we look at it even outside of just like our district lines, right? It's all regional. And I think a lot of the issues that we've seen and talk about and have heard about aren't just related to SD46. They are upstate issues. Um, we launched our campaign with a listening tour last July, uh, because I think quite frankly, if you're going to run, that's probably the best thing to do because you want to hear what the issues are. You know, you don't want to just assume what they are. You don't want to assume you know what people want more of or what's going on in their lives, it's especially when you have five counties. Uh, you want to make sure that you understand what they're going through. Uh, so we launched the listening tour and kind of traveled around to all the communities, talked to small business owners and farmers and union organizers, um, community activists, other elected officials and others to get a sense of that. You know, and I think overwhelmingly, in upstate New York in general, we need job development, right? We need good, meaningful work. And, and quite frankly, I'm a statistic. You know, I graduated in the middle of a recession, uh, but finding meaningful or long-term or quality jobs in lots of parts of upstate are really hard to come by normally, right? And force a lot of young people to move away and to move to Manhattan or to move to the city of Albany or to move to Rochester, to move to a city, uh, as opposed to being able to stay near their family, right? Or, or in their towns where they grew up or maybe where they want to raise their own families. And uh, there's a huge brain drain. And so I think uh, one of the things for me that's really important is how do we change that, right? How do we keep people here? Like we have so much potential. Uh, how do we do that? And I think a big way to do that that we need to be investing in uh, a lot more is green jobs. You know, it ties in the climate stuff, but that covers both white collar jobs and blue collar jobs. It covers, you know, capture, innovation, manufacturing, invention, retrofitting, you know, it covers so many things, um, working with our unions, bolstering and really building our unions and apprenticeship programs and strengthening tie-ins with our BOCI systems in our high schools especially funneling into kind of a bigger green job sector is huge. You know, even on the manufacturing side for that, so many of these things are being manufactured overseas. You know, we could, we've got the space, we've got the factories, we've got the people, you know, we could be doing that here in New York. Uh, we could be doing, you know, working with all of our farmers to get back to regenerative farming practices. Uh, not get back to, but really start more regenerative farming practices, which will kind of change the amount of carbon that we let loose into, into the world. You know, there's so much in that that we can do here in upstate that I think would just change the dynamics for so many people. Um, and then as you know, we touched on infrastructure, you know, broadband and, and internet services and cell service are critical um, for all of the things that we've talked about uh, and protecting our environment and obviously education too. You know, so many people in a, again, more rural communities 
don't have enough money in their school systems to to get the things and the quality of education that they deserve. You know, regardless of where people live, their kids should get a good education. And I think that that's beholden on the state to make sure that we are funding them equally. Uh, and, you know, it gets into a little bit of a messy thing with property taxes and education funding. But it shouldn't be just dependent on property taxes because yeah. if you're in a community where like that just doesn't make it any makes sense. No sense and so yeah and so that's something making sure that you know we we kind of reevaluate especially in this moment when i think we can and we have to um through covid you know how we're making education uh more equal yeah and i think upstate it's so i've spent a I'd like to say a good chunk of time up there. My dad went um, went to school up there, undergrad, went to Hobart. So um, a lot of reunion tours, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and looked at schools up there. So um, between that and a lot of friends, and I absolutely love it up there. And it's funny, so does my family. And so the conversation is kind of this continuation of, okay, well, we're going to move up there at some point. Um, how are we going to do it? And also, though, when we get there, what's the job situation? It's like constant. If I had a penny for every time my dad said that, oh, my God, I would be so wealthy, be unreal. <laughs> I, I contribute all of it to the property taxes. That then go to education and be fine. Great system. But it is like a question that comes up a lot. And so I always think, hmm, well, there's got to be some type of program that could potentially stimulate some additional jobs up there and at every different level, whether it's white collar, blue collar, in between and every which way. Um, so it makes me think, okay, well, what, you know, what are those programs? What do those look like? And with that sort of my question for you is, are there any programs out there right now that are sort of stimulating the economy upstate? Um, if so, you know, sort of how do those work? Um, if not, are there any that you would like to start? Yeah, you know, there there are some, but we ne we need a lot more. You know, it's not nearly enough. And I think one thing that we can also be doing a much better job of is like incubator programs and how are we encouraging people and young people and you know typically marginalized communities and others to start their own companies and to start their own businesses, whether that's a creative company or a restaurant or whatever it may be, but how are we funding and better funding, you know, these types of incubator programs that I think will really be able to, to support people and keep people here. You know, our main streets and our small businesses are really between that and unions are really the backbone of so many of our economies and just the communities uh, in upstate New York and in small towns, right? And so how do we make sure that people who are operating small businesses can afford to do that? Uh, and quite frankly, I think there's a lot more too that we can do at the state level uh, to help them, you know? And I think that we can't hold the mom and pop insurance company, you know, or the mom and pop shop down the street to the same standards that we're holding in Amazon, right? It's just not, it doesn't work like that. And it, we don't have as much nuance in some of our business laws uh, that would allow for that, right? And I think uh, it's something that's been a little bit over overlooked and it can be really hard, but what are the types of tax credits that we're giving to smaller businesses? How are we bumping those up? How are we, especially in COVID, you know, giving them tools and resources and funding for extra plexiglass and heat lamps as we, as the seasons change, but we still need to do outdoor dining. How do we make sure they all have PPE that they need um, or the space setup or the infrastructure like broadband so people can work from home? You know, there's a lot of these things uh, that tie into kind of that economic conversation that we just haven't invested enough in. Uh, and so I think both looking at those kind of very like tangible things, as well as extending and operating, you know, incubator programs for women-owned businesses, for minority-owned businesses, um, and then just people, young people or in any age uh, who have a dream, who want to start something here, you know, let's get them like co-work spaces to be able to do yeah. that. I think that's really um, good to think about. And it's so crazy, even when I started Girl on the Gov about two years ago, um, even just the continuous process of running a business and each thing that comes along, the amount of money that you have to spend just to even establish yourself as an LLC, right? Like that is an insane amount of money that goes out the door. And you're like, oh my God, wow, that hurt, right? Yeah. And it's like, but that's that's the barrier to entry, right? So 
to try and reduce some of that barrier to entry will only incubate more change and more innovation because it allows more people through the door. And I think that, I mean, personally, I'm just like, wow, that would really personally have helped me, but it definitely would help other people too. And I think it would, I definitely have some friends who are like, okay, just like remove a few, you know, um, little standing points and they would totally start their own businesses. It would be great. But right. those, you know, those unfortunately barriers do exist right now. So it would definitely, um, good to consider all of these other change points and ways that we can, um, sort of push people over, not over the edge. Oh my God. Push people <laughs> but incentivize. to the finish line. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. To, to incentivize people to do that, you know, and, and yeah. because every small business is employing, you know, a handful of other people in the community and they, if the, the diversity of job opportunities will keep more people in our communities. Absolutely. Sure. Well, great. Like talking a little bit now about state politics and government, kind of getting into all of that. I mean, this year we've started to see much more attention given to state government, um, rightfully so, especially with COVID and how, you know, we have our state legislatures making a lot of decisions regarding that. And so citizens are really starting to realize like how much state government really impacts their day to day and their lives and their business. You know, it seems like there's a good amount of confusion as to how it works and from, you know, being a state senator versus an assembly member. And then how is that different than like the senators that go to D.C.? Like, I'm sure there's people who really just don't know enough about state government. What is the role of a state senator? Yeah. So there's the just to break it down, right, there's the national government, which has the president. And then in the uh, Senate, in the U.S. Senate, there are two senators from every state regardless. Uh, regardless of population, just two senators across the board. And then House of Representatives are based on population. And those districts and the number of House of Representative members, of Congress members, change every 10 years based on population flux by state. I think here in New York, we are slated to lose two uh, just because the population has decreased. But just a quick plug for the census, that's why it is so important to fill out the census, because that is one of the things that determines how many House of Representative members we have as a state. So regardless of where you live, that's one of the things that really feeds into that, because that's how we know population, um, which is critical. Uh, and then those, obviously, uh, that branch of government controls all the national laws. And then every state has a state government that controls state laws. And so those are the, as we learn, you know, in high school history and such, it's like states' rights, right? This is where that comes into play. And similarly in the structure of federal U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, it's state Senate and then the assembly. And uh, in the assembly, they're both uh, based on population, but the assembly has more members. Uh, and the districts are slightly smaller. And then for state Senate in New York, they're 63 and the districts are larger, as we've said. Uh, and that's uh, the things that we do. We have to manage the state budget. Uh, so how much money uh, New York has itself, where that money is coming in, how we pay that out, what types of programs are funded. Um, you know, if you are in office, you know, there's money that you can typically bring back to your district to help support the local firehouses or to support, uh, you know, walkways and environmental locations um, and all those EMS services and all these kinds of things. Uh, it's really important you, you get that money, especially when you're in the majority um, as part of the budget conversations. Uh, and then state laws, you know, there's a lot of things, even if they're being talked about and kind of similar issues at the federal level, you still want to kind of codify them at the state level, especially, you know, when we're in a moment like we are right now, which is typically unusual. Uh, but when you have a federal government that doesn't, you know, care as much about state's welfare um, and well-being, and maybe, you know, if you're uh, fundamentally against some of the things that, you know, that, that trying to roll back, you know, marriage equality or roll back Roe v. Wade at the national level, you can kind of codify them at the state level to make sure that even if things change nationally, they don't change in your state. Uh, and that's really state by state. And so in 2018, when the Democrats flipped um, the Senate and took the majority, for the very first time, they passed the Reproductive Health Act, which actually basically codified Roe v. Wade at a state level. 
New York didn't have that before. You know, a lot of people, I think, thought that New York is this like big blue progressive democratic state, but we had a lot of things that weren't actually state law that we kind of just assumed were, that being one of them. Uh, marriage equality being another one uh, is now legal in New York. So whatever happens, you know, with the Supreme Court, it's still legal here. Um, banning uh, the New York, New York state banned fracking uh, in the state. And so, uh, or like ended a pipeline, really, there's a couple of bills still to push it forward to, to ban it entirely. But that's huge, you know, fracking for, for like, especially hydrofracking, uh, for those that don't know, it's a type of drilling for natural gas. But the way that it's done and kind of the mixture that it's used, it poisons the groundwater and it's really bad for the environment. And uh, we were able in the state to kind of say no more. We don't want pipelines coming through here. We don't want to be fracking, uh, which, you know, they can still do it in Pennsylvania, uh, but not in New York. And that's really exciting. And so there's a lot of things uh, that, you know, if you believe in these things or you want to make a difference, uh, you can do them at a, at a smaller level on the state level. And the other exciting thing for it too, a state like New York, we have a really big city, obviously, uh, and then a lot of more rural and small communities. And so we kind of run the spectrum and it's like kind of a nice microcosm of the whole country, right? And so if you can pass laws here that work for everyone, it kind of becomes possibly a blueprint for how you could start to layer that out at the national level. And so a lot of times you see things like that too between state and federal. It's actually, this might be like a, a weird tangent, but it's kind of weird that this idea of changing something locally hasn't occurred to people more, I don't know, has, hasn't been more top of mind previously because automatically when you're talking about Ulster County, I automatically thought about dry counties, how people constantly like, call this like the millennial me, but people are constantly complaining about like, okay, well, we went to college XYZ spot and we couldn't drink because it was a dry county or couldn't buy alcohol here, right? And it's like, okay, well, that happened a really long time ago. That might've been outdated, but there's a very, very long history of making change at a local level that impacts that whole area. So where that like kind of fell off, I mean, that's definitely a confusion point for me. Um, and would like love to almost like do a deep dive into sort of the history of that, of where it clearly was remarketed in some way that made it less appealing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when we elect the same people over and over again, you know, it's hard, you feel like nothing's ever going to change. And we've made our election system and our campaign system favors incumbents. And it favors people who have been in the system already. It favors people who come from communities of wealth. It favors men, right? And so it's hard to change. It is really hard to change it. And I feel like, you know, you get a little, people get complacent. Um, or, you know, we ask, like the average person is asked to pay attention to so many things, you know, between the federal government and international stuff and their own lives and their school districts and like, and their jobs, you know, there's just a lot going on. And unless you're really going to take the time to understand how it works or what thing is tied to the county, what's tied to your town board, what's tied to the state, what's the national partnership, you know, it gets, it can be very convoluted. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's hard to break that through. And sometimes it's not that easy to communicate. And I think throughout time, to your point, we have gotten away from like, go make change at your local level, because you can. Uh, and it's just when we keep electing the same people over and over, like these races cost so much money. And it's insane. Like, I remember when we first opened, so this state Senate race to run a state Senate campaign, to do it right and to reach all the people you need to reach costs about $750,000. That's and insane. That's genuinely insane. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, first of all, all of that money should be going to people. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. But that's what the system is right now. You know, and so I remember when we first opened our committee and, and did the listening tour in July and we were starting to, you know, figure out how do we fundraise? What do we do? How do we start a campaign? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, is this real? And someone 
who I got referred to was like, oh, you can raise $100,000 really easy in a month. And I was like, oh, how? Yeah, like, huh? like, Why have I been doing this? <laughs> crazy. Yeah, I was like, that seems great, but great, let's do it. How do we do it? And they were like, oh, just find 10 people to give you $10,000. I was like, I'm sorry. I don't, <laughs> I don't know repeat. those people. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know those people. Like, do you have 10 people who will give us $10,000? Because I don't, those aren't my friends. Those, that's not my community. And, but that's, you know, where we are, you know, those people who are, who are running or have connections to those things. And that's why you see, you know, grassroots fundraising being so important, but it's so time consuming yeah. to raise all that money to raise $750,000 by like $3 increments. Although like my favorite contribution, a woman gave me $4 twice and I like immediately called her and was like, hello, thank you. You're amazing. Because like those are the people right. that you're running for. Yeah. You yeah. know, those are the people that you should be doing this for. Uh, but I think until we change some of this structure, it's gonna be really hard. I mean, these are clear barriers to entry um, for, you know, anyone who doesn't come from a community of institutionalized wealth, um, or are inherently, unfortunately, you know, more white and male. And, uh, even I know, like when I walk into donor meetings, I leave with like half the amount of money that I would get if I was slightly older man. And it just is right. right. It's just harder. Uh, but we have to change that so that way we can kind of reinvigorate this change at the local level uh, remembrance, right? Because it, it's we're electing the same people over and over again. So, of course, people feel like nothing's going to change. Yeah. And I think just even being on the PR end of things, the mediums that you have to tackle are so expensive. Um, and that's another barrier to entry of stuff. And it's funny because I was... Uh, actually talking to the crew over at Women for the Win recently, and they their whole thing is creating advertisements um, and campaign messaging um, for women running for office and being able to give that to them at either a heavy, heavy discount or for free and how much that's elevated different campaigns for them. Because previously, some of these women are amazing candidates, but raising the money enough just to get a ad on a local TV station is so expensive. That's just not feasible. And it's like, how do you compete with the incumbent that then has all of the ins already, all the connections and has the budget just based off of that. Because it's like, oh, well, yeah, I'll give him a hundred dollars. He seems to be doing a good job and I know his name. Perfect. You know, people are just yeah, full yeah. operate in that way. So, and you're so right. It's this whole system needs to change. Um, and I think there's a lot of different levers that need to be pulled to make that happen. Um, but even just having these conversations, making people aware that the system needs to change, yeah. alerting people to the problem is definitely step one, because how can you solve it if you don't know the problem in the first place? Mm -hmm. So absolutely. I think we're and looking really at those spot. other organizations. Yeah, no. And, and looking at those other organizations that are elevating it and helping people. Right. I mean, so wonderful that, you know, Women for the Win and, and yours and, and others have really come up to do that and to kind of like pull the veil off for a lot of people because it is this like very, as we were saying, very daunting and hard thing to do anyway. I mean, like the, you have to get into such a headspace to even decide to run. I mean, you have to put yourself out there. It's super uncomfortable. You know, you have to kind of put your life on hold if you're going to do it kind of right. And depending on the race that you're running for, depending on how big it is, right? For ours to travel five counties, like that's a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and there's so much you have to figure out how you raise money. You have to ask people for money, which is so uncomfortable, um, especially for women and especially for young women. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, there's it's such an awkward thing totally. to do. And then you have to learn how you set up a committee you have to know the paperwork you file with both a bank and the board of elections. And then you have to like know who you're reaching out to. There's just so many things that like, you don't know what to do. Like even for me, again, coming from a, a space where I know people, I've been around it. We were opening, we were like filing our paperwork with the BOE and they were like, so what's your bank account number? And I was like, bank account number. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. And then we had to like run over and like go figure out how to open a bank account to be able to then run back and complete the paperwork for the committee. We just had no idea. Yeah, it's you crazy. Know? And so you have. I mean, and it is. I mean, you think about too, just, okay, say everything, okay, everything goes right. You get your campaign in order. You have a great team. Like 
you you run an amazing campaign there's still a 50 50 chance that you will lose like or maybe it's even not those chances but you know there's just that idea of like okay i could run this campaign and spend say a year doing this and could just lose like and then what then did i waste my time or what does that mean for me like that's even a daunting concept to like really go and and do it and i mean especially if you're running against an incumbent where just name recognition alone is the biggest leg up you can possibly have, I think, in a campaign. Um, but no, I mean, Absolutely. it's so daunting. And especially, again, like you said, for women and minority groups and these groups and people that we don't normally see in these spaces, it, it's tough. And Yeah, it, it's true. And, and you know, it, you have to be one of the questions that I was asked by like our like my main advisor was like, I'm going to ask you this question once and we're never going to talk about it again. And I was like, oh my God, like, what did I do? Like, what, what is this going to be? And he was like, well, what happens if you lose? And at that point, I had kind of worked through that a bit because you have to, to exactly your point. And I was like, you know what, then we, we lose, you know, we're going to work really hard, uh, but you don't know what opportunities you're going to get through the experience. You don't know, you meet so many people in a campaign, you gain so much exposure, but also so many more skills, you just gain such a different outlook. And I was like, you know what, like who knows what's gonna happen? Like yeah. we're running to win, but like if you can be comfortable and like it's gonna work out because you're putting yourself out there and you're doing the right thing and you're doing it for the right reasons, like you can always go back to a job. Yeah. You know, like you're you're gonna be able to find that. And the experience that you've gained by doing something like this totally is quite frankly invaluable. That's what I was gonna right? say. Like too. you have because I I mean I've worked on campaigns and I've obviously never been a candidate, but like even just working on campaigns, it's such a fulfilling experience, especially when you're the ones like talking to voters and listening to people and like pushing for these like existential issues often like it's a really fulfilling thing to do so I can't even imagine like how fulfilling it'd be regardless of what the result ends up being you know being the candidate and like fighting for people because like also if you think about this concept like I feel like there's been talk about this when you think about like Bernie and how he really pushed the needle on like a lot of progressive policies his presidential run didn't go the way he wanted it to but just the the things he pushed and the way he pushed the needle and pushed other candidates to be more progressive on different things and like push Joe Biden on climate and on healthcare and like that those th that's a win in itself and I think that's often forgotten but I think it's something that's again at the end of the day very noble and very fulfilling and something to be proud of regardless if you win or not absolutely and just making sure that you're elevating those issues right mm -hmm. like Joe Biden is now the most progressive person running for president we've ever had, which is not what you put no. together when you necessarily think about Joe Biden, right? But it's because of all of the awesome candidates that were up there and the conversations that were being had. Uh, you know, for us, it, it's interesting because we were planning to run against this man, George Amador, who was the incumbent. Um, and two months after we announced officially, uh, he announced he was not going to run. So it's become an open seat. However, they were able to find someone with a very similar last name minus one letter. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so that to me is a perfect example. And then like, they're not doing any, you know, interviews, they're barely doing, there's no policy platform, there's nothing. Wow. And they're just banking on voter confusion and name recognition. Wow. And we're out here and COVID makes it really hard um to kind of break through to be anywhere you know we went to an event that usually would have like a hundred people we went to one at much smaller than it usually is socially distanced etc there were six people and two of them were from new jersey and so like not our constituents and oh so it's God. just a totally different world right now and it just goes to the point of like you have to just no matter what like push through the issues and the important things that you're talking about and you're running on because people will try to stop you like at every turn just because it may be easier for them, you know, and it's kind of easier just to not talk about it. 
or to pretend like you don't exist, especially, you know, female candidates. Um, and just to kind of push through whether you're the incumbent or not, or to someone who likes to pretend that they are the incumbent. Uh, but you still have to elevate the issues. You still have to push it forward. You still have to try to make a difference because that's the stuff that we're fighting against, you know? Uh, and just making sure that you are comfortable and confident in what you're fighting for. And that, you know, if it's, if it's jobs, if it's infrastructure, if it's climate, if it's education, if it's housing, you know, whatever it may be, but like, know that you're right in it and just don't let anybody get in your way when you want to talk about it. All right. Well, we have our next segment, which is called, I have a stupid question, but we naturally have a lot of stupid questions. So of course we want to ask an expert, see, you know, what the, the forum one is. Um, so we'll start off with, um, does the state government, like say New York's policy decisions, um, does it impact all states? I know we kind of covered this a little bit previously, um, a little bit earlier in the episode, but just in terms of getting a straightforward, just to the point answer, um, can a, a policy that happens in New York state affect another state? Overarchingly, no, right? I mean, there are some there are some that, you know, can go by region and that when you tie, especially if you look for COVID, that tie, um, you know, by region, whether New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, possibly. But overall, um, no. If there's a law for New York State, it is New York State only. Or influence other states, too. You know, I think typically it is very insular. I've actually just recently been having conversations about, you know, how do we join in with, with other states and kind of do some things regionally like that, you know, especially when you look at things like cannabis legalization and, and stuff like that. Um, we could be thinking about it a little bit more broadly, but overall, uh, New York state laws are New York state laws. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, next is what is the difference between a state senator and assembly member? A state senator, assembly member, it's a tongue twister, all these names. <laughs> and your and your state's senators or Congress people and like do they interact? Yeah, so they all interact. Uh the state senators and assembly members though are the upper and lower house of the state government. Uh both houses can write and pick up bills, but they need co-sponsors from the other house. So you can't pass a bill without co-sponsors a certain number of co-sponsors from your own chamber as well as either the other chambers so assembly or senate both have to be on it um, and then there's a lot of issues you know while we talk about you know new york state laws and federal laws there is a lot of partnership there you know and so it's really important that our state elected officials work in partnership with our federal elected officials that's both you know figuring out how we bring money back into communities and the district to talk about, you know, what things are really important and are there partnerships, say, for housing, right? Like there's a lot of federal housing initiatives. There's also local housing initiatives. But so how do you work together to make sure that those are not just working in tandem, um, but that they're doing the right things and you're being, kind of bringing the right funding and going into the right locations? all those kinds of things. And so it's really important that there is a, you know, a relationship and a connection because those people are all working together. All right, so for our next question, what is the difference between state Senate and state assembly? Yeah, they're just the, you know, the upper house and the lower house. And there are more senator, fewer senators than there are assembly members because each senator represents a larger group of people or larger region or area of people. Um, however, senators state senators are is the only chamber that can approve uh you know like governor appointments uh and, and judges i believe yeah um is there an age requirement for running for state senate both assembly and state senate i believe are 18. hey okay that's yep. amazing so right now yeah i and i'm 32 uh but my birthday is on election day oh, uh, my, oh my gosh happy early birthday that could birthday. be the best birthday ever <laughs> it'll be something you know where it's gonna our race is just so gerrymandered that we won't know the results kind of regardless of what we do especially because of of absentee voting you know vote by mail this year uh but yeah so i'll turn 33 on the third and uh, if, you know, if elected, we will be the youngest person elected outside of New York City for the state legislature or for the Senate, oh my gosh. That's which amazing. is exciting. Wow, that'd be awesome. 
Yeah, which is just another reason why we need more young people to run and to talk about these yeah. things like jobs for young people and education and all these things that we kind of just haven't been addressing enough. And we see that younger generations are more and more accepting of all different types of things, right? And it's really hard, I think, for people of different generations to even see some of the stuff that, you know, we're all facing or going through things that are changing and lingo and concepts. And that's why it's so important that you have young people who are just as open-minded or who are just as like in touch and, and open and thoughtful about all the things that are going on, because we don't want, you know, people who don't know us to be making all the rules for us. Right. I mean, that's not going to work. Right. Um, and because it can be, you know, we can be 18, you know, you can't like have some, you know, and then we see people kind of running across the state at, at young ages. I will say, you know, it's really good to have kind of some semblance of, you know, experience in the world of how either through business or in government to see how things work and be able to build constituency um, and partnerships and bring people to the table and, and understand it. But we desperately need uh, new and more people at all ages in, in all of our government. <laughs> right. So we did want to kind of get into um, just relevant stories going on. And I think, you know, this conversation of rural communities is very important um, and often neglected in politics. Um, but, you know, you're in it and that's a big constituency for you. So kind of going, talking about rural communities, but also kind of segue, like segueing into climate they do go hand in hand and i think there's a lot of ways rural policy needs to include climate and you know how do you plan to do that if so and like how can we make rural policy that can address the climate crisis yeah you know i think a lot of that starts with with farming and agriculture um and making sure that we are supporting our family farms uh, because that's a really important thing to do and make sure that they can even afford to stay here and we can keep that land green, uh, but we can also work with them to shift some practices into, you know, regenerative farming, which is a whole way, kind of a newer school. It's actually a really old school, but more newer school way of farming that kind of shifts around different plots of land that can actually keep a lot more when you overturn, it keeps a lot more carbon in the soil. And so working with our farmers, working with our new farmers, um, young, there's a ton of young people who are kind of getting into the farming world now. And so if we can start people off with, those, with that knowledge and those resources, uh, that's a big thing. Uh, and then making sure too, that we're working with people who own land, with our local municipalities, um, making sure that we're all shifting really to renewables as, as fast as we can and, and as well as we can, you know, giving businesses that have, you know, big warehouses incentives to put solar panels on all of their roofs, right? Making sure that we are finding if there's like brown soil, if there's like landfills that can't be used for anything because they're trash landfills, putting solar, like a solar field on that. And growing it with pollinators. Uh, one of the things that you do now in a lot of places is in these solar fields, you plant um, very specific plants uh, and different things that attract pollinators and stuff to increase that too and increase our bee population. Uh, and so making sure that whenever you're creating these solar fields or building solar fields, it's one on the right places of land. You're not like clear cutting trees to put up solar panels. You're finding the places um, that sh can and should use it that will be helpful and then planting the things around it that will also help the environment. Uh, and then working with the local municipalities that they can really shift to renewables and have the, both the, the incentives, but also the resources to do it. All right. Um, we did have one question specifically on New York climate change policy, and that had to do with the Restore Mother Nature Bond Act. So I read up a little bit about this previously. I had heard it a little bit in the news. And then I heard that it got pulled, which I was a little disappointed about. Um, so we wanted to give a little bit of background to our listeners. First of all, what is it? What is What was it supposed to do? And then also talking about why did it get pulled? Um, how did that happen? And could it ever kind of make its way back to the, you know, the top of the conversation? You know, I think a lot of environmentalists and, and people were really upset about it, uh, especially because as we've said, healthcare and our environment are inextricably linked. And if we don't invest the money now, 
all of these things are going to cost us so much more money in the future. Uh, especially, you know, one of the things that's big for me that ties into it is the water quality issue. You know, they're the parts of it in it from the things that I said about invasive species. Um, it's also like storm, um, you know, infrastructure and flooding. So for like a bunch of the river towns and such big storm walls. Um, so as, you know, water levels rise, you know, we're insulating our communities uh, from that and kind of the, the destruction that is really about to come over the next handful of years. Um, water quality, water infrastructure funding. So we have communities across our district that still have 100 year old water infrastructure. Um, there's another community I was talking to the other day that their water infrastructure, all of their pipes are built, they have like four times the amount of copper it's supposed to have. And they also may have asbestos uh, because they oh are gosh. asbestos pipes. So, you know, in the Bond Act, it had money for a lot of these things to help be able to mitigate these things and to fix them. And it was pulled because we are facing this very daunting budget crisis. And, and I think the broader thought from the governor's office was, you know, we don't have right now enough money allocated for funding like our schools and our hospitals and such. We can't allocate $3 billion to these environmental issues where I, the other, the flip side argument is, well, it's only gonna cost significantly more down the road if we're not doing it now. It will address many of the issues we're currently facing and we've gotta be more creative about our revenue structure as we've talked about uh, so that we can do all these things. We can't run on an austerity budget. We just can't do it. Um, and so that's not the solution. The solution isn't just pull everything. You know, The solution is let's get more money so we can do the things we need to do. Um, but I am, I, I do believe it'll come back. Uh, I still hold out hope Fingers that crossed. it may be there, but I know it won't. Yeah. But I think, I think it definitely will. And there's a lot of advocates for it. It's something that I will push for, um, in the capacity that I can. Uh, but I do think it'll, it'll be back, it'll be back around because it's too important not to be. I could not agree more. Um, fingers crossed for sure. Um, well, speaking of that being a top issue for you, we want to dive into our homework segment, um, give you an opportunity to plug your website, um, any issues you you know want to just make sure our listeners are aware of, um, and of course, your social media. Yeah, so check us out. Uh, we have three weeks until the election, which is crazy. I think it was 23 days, 24 days or so. Um, our website is Hinchy, H-I-N-C-H-E-Y, uh, the word for, F-O-R-N-Y, like New York. So hinchy4ny.com. Um, we've got a bunch of information on there, but obviously we are way more active um, on our social channels uh, day to day. Um, but so our social handle, our Instagram is uh, Michelle Hinchy NY Senate. I think, yes. Our <laughs> Facebook page. Our Facebook page is Michelle Hinchy State Senate. Um, and my name was long and because of my dad, I felt it really important that I had to use my first name. Mm -hmm. And then on Twitter, I'm just Michelle Hinchy. I just switched over kind of my personal Twitter to, uh, the campaign cause we're all one person. So, yeah, uh, you know, following along, uh, we've got a bunch of stuff there. Obviously we are working still to, to fundraise and make phone calls, uh, write postcards, send texts. Uh, we have a ton of opportunities. Um, for anyone to find out more about the race, um, to be involved, if they're looking for ways uh, to be involved. You know, I, obviously the national stuff is so important and lots of people are making calls into places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. But as we've said, state and local elections are tremendously important also. And so, yeah. you know, we, there's a real, real chance here uh, to, to flip our state. We should be up on TV uh, next week too, which is really exciting. Amazing. Um, because we've gotten so much support. I mean, the momentum for the for the race and the campaign it has been tremendous and, mm -hmm. and awesome. And I think that's a testament to all of the people in our communities who have decided that now is the time for change. Totally. Well, I'm super impressed. I mean, I love what you're running on. And again, I love just this conversation about you know, encouraging people to run for office and like you're doing it and you're a testament to that. And um I will definitely be watching and I hope the best, especially on your birthday. That'll oh be great yes. once you get that W. <laughs> it'll be, yeah, it'll be something. But yeah, it, I mean, it's really, it's really exciting. And I think, you know, today, 
uh, to be like a little bit hokey, but today is like International Day of the Girl. And oh, yeah, one yeah. of the things that's so, you know, we, we posted about it because what's so exciting, I think we're in this moment finally where more and more young women and girls are seeing that it's okay to demand, you know, seats at the table and it's yeah. okay to, and not that that's okay, it's that you should, you know, we, you have to. Have to. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited just to, to show, to make it a little bit more accessible um, for people. And I think both of you are doing, you know, the exact same thing uh, to just provide, you know, that, that forum and, and to give people really an insight into it and to see that it's really not that scary. Um, inherently it is, uh, but you know, it, it's important and uh, it, it's really not that, that bad. And if you can kind of build the network and build the community around you and you know that things need to change and you know that you're doing it for the right reasons, um, more of us have to get involved. Uh, totally. So just on, on that note, I think it, it, the day of the girl is a moment uh, I for I think that. our whole campaign. Amazing. Well, everyone, don't forget to go subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, again, Apple Podcasts, if you can hit that subscribe button and leave us a review, that would be amazing to help us climb those charts. Spotify, you got to hit us with a follow um, or anywhere else you guys listen to podcasts. We we are there. So go find us, subscribe. Um, and then we also just want to let you guys know about, you know, an initiative we're pushing um, because it is time to vote and we want to make sure you guys are equipped with all the information you need. So um, if you guys have any questions at all about voting, um, please DM us or email us. Um, we will be ready and on deck to answer any questions you have. So if that's literally like, I do not understand this ballot measure, send it to us. We will give you the impartial resources you need to like understand it and make your own decision. And then if there's anything we can answer on the spot, we'll totally just give you the answer right there to your voter checklist and your voter plan and, you know, knowing your, your rights as a voter, ask us anything. Um, and we will either answer it for you or give you the like impartial resources you need to um, get the answer to that question. So again, look on social media. We'll be reminding you of this, but yeah. And make sure you're following us on social media, by the way, if you're not get with it, but it's girl on the gov, the podcast on Instagram. So go follow us there. And again, DM us any questions at all that you have about voting. Well, thank you again, Michelle. This has been amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully everyone is leaving here with a better understanding of state government and excited to go, you know, see who their state legislators are and go vote. Of course. Thank you. I'll yes. come back anytime. <laughs> so thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. Yes. Um, but everyone listening, we will talk to you guys next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.